This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Hi, I'm Greg Polson, and this is Cults. Today, we return to the history of the cult known as the Family International, established in the late 1960s as the Children of God by self-proclaimed prophet David Berg. This cult soon spread worldwide and still maintains a steady membership to this day. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Hi, everyone. We'd like to ask a quick favor. Would you leave a five-star review of cults on your favorite podcast directory? It seems so simple, but it really helps us out. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Last week, we focused on the upbringing of David Berg, his early childhood sexual abuse, and the dysfunctions this resulted in later in life. Raised by a charismatic preacher within the evangelical movement, Berg's existence became divided in two half in pursuit of God's holy mission, and half in pursuit of his own sexual perversions. By the time he declared himself Moses Berg, God's end-time prophet, this cult leader had achieved a loyal following that he was more than ready to exploit. This week, we'll observe the cult's path toward worldwide growth. As Moses Berg retreats into isolation from most members, we'll see how his words, passed down as divine edicts, shaped the behavior and lives of his followers for decades. Finally, we'll learn how this obscure and rebellious cult from the 60s dwindled into the more subdued new religious movement it has become today. When we last left the children of God, they had just reached their first major turning point, the creation myth. In 1969, David Berg gathered 150 followers on a small farm near Vienna, Virginia, and together they emerged as the new nation of the children of God. Berg became Moses Berg, their prophet, and at his side was Maria, formerly Karen Zerbe, a mistress made leader in her own right. Like that, a cult was born as the swinging 60s came to a close. But during this turbulent era, they were far from the only group declaring themselves as such. This was the era of the Jesus Movement. Like the charismatic revivalist movement we covered last week, the members of this mass movement, commonly referred to as both Jesus people and Jesus freaks, professed a more direct connection to God. They also tied themselves into the counterculture emerging at the time, the folk music, the demonstration culture surrounding the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War, and the hippie free love revolution. David Berg built his cult's identity upon this radical evangelical foundation. He lured in the youth by convincing them to rebel against their constrictive upbringings and the beliefs of their parents' generation. The ideology of the children of God was simple. Accept Jesus into your heart and you are saved. It was an easy conversion process so easy that it made new believers immediately ready and willing to hit the pavement and recruit even more. Recruiting, otherwise known as witnessing, was a display of good faith and good acts. These were the points that would win you onto God's side in the coming end time. Because while the children of God always kept on a happy face, it's impossible to separate their doctrine from a belief in the apocalypse. Followers easily bought into this apocalyptic state of mind. David Berg's own ethos was a complete rejection of the American capitalist system. 
Many of his own personal beliefs came from the ideology of Christian socialism, a philosophy that posits Christ himself would be a socialist in today's world. Yet Berg also decried the communist states overseas. In his eyes, all of these systems of government were godless. They were leading the world straight into the Great Tribulation, defined as complete social and economic collapse. The children of God were to focus on preparing the souls of the world for this future. They were to save as many as possible and earn their right to stand by the side of Christ. Only through this would they be spared from destruction. They were not the only counterculture religion to arise during the Jesus movement, but their rebel spirit and radical beliefs epitomized the nature of these groups in the eyes of the nation. They were hailed as heroes by some, but the establishment looked upon them as either terrorists in the making or exploitative kidnappers of the youth. As the 60s turned into the 70s, strong anti-cult movements coalesced, most importantly, FreeCog, a group of rightfully worried parents and lawyers, aiming a spear right for the children of God's heart. Yet this merely fed the flames of cults like the children of God. Of course enemies would arise to halt their progress. It fit their biblical narrative in the making perfectly. Within religious studies, a confounding question defined the era. Are these fresh offshoot groups new religions? Are they religions at all, or just brainwashing cults? In the end, is there a difference between old religions and the new, aside from historical distance? In the case of the children of God, the next few decades would prove its status as a cult. But David Berg didn't think so. He believed God was just as active today as he was in the ancient days. Or at least, that's what he preached. And what he preached caught fire. In his mind, and therefore in the mind of the followers, there was no difference between a new and old religious movement. They had already overcome the problem of self-definition in the early 60s. The 70s and 80s posed a new question. What happens when the children of God start having children themselves? What is the destiny of this second generation? Of course, the prophet wanted these kids raised up to be loyal soldiers too. But this second generation was at risk of something more sinister the dangerous impulses of their leader, and his ideas regarding sex. As we know, David Berg was a deeply disturbed individual. As time passed, he withdrew himself from anyone who might defy him. With the children of God as an extension of himself, he passed his own perverse thoughts to his followers as scripture. Echoing the war raging in David Berg's own mind, religious devotion gave way to sexual dysfunction. Innocence would have to answer for their leader's actions, and within Berg's actual family, his first group of devout followers became shell-shocked victims. A tragedy emerged in slow motion, a tragedy that would end in murder. The year was 1970, when David Berg led all 150 children of God to West Texas. Berg's old mentor, the evangelist Fred Jordan, had given his permission for the children of God to utilize his abandoned Soul Clinic ranch as a base of operations. As some followers were put to work on renovations, the rest were organized into smaller groups and sent out to perform vigils across the United States, from Houston to Chicago to D.C. The goal was to raise awareness of the new nation and their knowledge of the coming end times. It was also when the prophet Moses Berg first began to outline a daily structure for his followers' lives. Unless they were involved in specific projects, the days on the ranch are to be lived simply and dutifully. According to the book later written by David's oldest daughter, Deborah, the day would begin by waking up at 6.30 sharp. Members shared a light breakfast with one another, but by 7.30, everyone was off to do whatever task they were assigned to do for the day construction work, gardening, cooking. It was communal living, but the followers were definitely the grunts in the situation. After four hours, the children of God shared another meal. They needed the energy because for the next six hours, they engaged in intense Bible study. In a few years, when Moses Berg began writing his own material, his words took on equal reverence in these enforced study sessions. After another meal, the followers spent the hours between 7 and 9 p.m. together in fellowship. In the early days, David Berg often took the lead at this point, or allowed someone like Maria to do so. There was dancing and testimonies of conversion and belief. 
This was also the incubation period for the leadership structure within the cult. At the top, of course, was Moses Berg, the prophet. At his side was Maria, also known as Mother Maria. Next, the royal family. This included all of Berg's children, Deborah, Aaron, Hosea, and Faith, as well as his ex-wife Jane Miller Berg, called Mother Eve within the cult. Most importantly, though, was the chain. Over the course of this first official year of 1971, recruits flooded into Texas from the west and east coasts. David Berg was able to sort through his favorites, those who seemed most devout to his own self-belief. These people became leaders in the hierarchy known as the chain. These sub-leaders were then given a few followers of their own and sent to found new compounds throughout the United States. They were instructed to carry the daily rituals and teachings along with them. A true doctrine was to be established, and there were many willing supplicants. The Jesus movement was in full bloom, and the children of God were some of the most charismatic recruiters on the scene. At the beginning of 1971, their cult absorbed another burgeoning religious cult known as the Jesus People Army. This highly bolstered their initial ranks and set out a message across the nation. The children of God were striving for legitimacy. They weren't just a flash in the pan. But they were also becoming increasingly infamous as a cult. After they stirred up too much trouble around the country, Fred Jordan kicked the cult off his property in Texas in September of 1972. By now, though, it didn't matter. The children of God were over 2,000 strong. With their numbers, enemies did rise. Most significantly, the anti-cult group known as Free Cog, sponsored mainly by parents of youth who joined up under Berg. Where the children of God preached, Free Cog followed. They were an organized resistance, shouting just as loudly that it was brainwashing techniques and drugs, rather than Jesus' love, that won over followers. Meanwhile, the prophet decried these groups as fascists and thought police. But privately, his paranoia mounted. During 1972, David Berg withdrew entirely from public life. Even in images seen by cult members, his face was often obscured by the image of a benevolent cartoon lion. It was during this time that the central texts of this new religious movement emerged. Berg began writing to communicate to his growing base. These were deemed Moses letters, or simply Mo letters. Written in a highly colloquial style, the Mo letters were sensationalized call to arms. Hundreds were written in the first few years alone, and they covered every lifestyle aspect of the cult. As these letters piled up, a fuller doctrine came into focus. With his pen, Moses Berg outlawed birth control. He told his followers to never take a full-time job. He told them where they should live and where they should witness to non-believers. The doctrine of Mo's most important feature, though, was its malleability. This is how, even from afar, hidden away from almost every member of his cult, David Berg managed to retain his control and influence over the group. He could adapt and tweak the mission statement of the group whenever he wanted, and simply write it up as a new vision from God. The following quote comes from one of Berg's earliest letters. Quote, The Bible is the one to begin with, but we also need to have his present word. Dreams, visions, spirit trips, as well as direct answers to prayer. Direct revelations, prophecy, tongues, and interpretations. The original recorded word, as found in the Bible, is a wonderful, wonderful book. Of course, a lot of things have been changed since the Bible days. So if you want and need some later information, then you need to faithfully read and study the Mo letters." End quote. Even then, at the earliest point, he was subtly suggesting that his written word had the same, if not more, authenticity than the Bible itself. In April 1972, David Berg distributed the Mo letter entitled, The Great Escape. This letter described his recent flight from America to his followers. Under the cover of night, he had just fled his secret hideaway in Oklahoma for England. He would never set foot in the United States again. The question hangs in the air. Why? Well, David Berg's daughter, Deborah, attributes it to his paranoia. As groups like Freecog rose against him, this self-made prophet must have seen that his actions had consequences. 
It's also interesting to pursue the line of thought that David Berg knew that some of his criminal sexual behavior might be more easily uncovered in America than abroad, countries where no one yet knew about the children of God or its leader. But there was another side to this flight, inspiration. His latest Mo letter beckoned the children of God to follow him on his global journey. He predicted that America would be the first to fall during the Great Tribulation, and that his followers were needed elsewhere, in places still worth saving. Whether or not David Berg believed in this coming apocalypse, his real goal here was to overcome boundaries early and often. The children of God's Christian socialist perspective was ready-made for countries in Latin America and Europe. Missionaries were also sent to Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and India. To back up this expansionist pursuit, in January 1973, mass publication of Mo's letters began. Now, they wouldn't be just for followers, but for potential recruits as well. Over 68 million pieces of Children of God literature were distributed by 1976. Internationally, the cult had a specific appeal. They were Americans. Ironic enough, as Berg hated nothing more than the so-called oppressive capitalist and corporatist system of America, his people also represented a faction of the radical counterculture of the time. For rebels worldwide, there was a sex appeal in the children of God. It helped that many members were young, attractive, and incredibly friendly. That was the modus operandi from the beginning. Recruit the youth through the youth. By 1974, Les Enfants de Du, a folk band created by the Children of God, actually scored a number one single in France, continuing and evolving the musical component of the cult that had been there since its earliest days at the Huntington Beach Light Club. Yet even as their recruitment strategy hit an all-time high, David Berg was at one of his lowest points personally. After leaving America, he fell into full-time alcoholism. Combined with his already established megalomania, this made for some rather erratic Mo letters. And for the next two decades, the direction of his cult would be steered by these foundational texts, conceived of and written by a drunk. His firstborn daughter, Deborah, also experienced a major break with her father and the royal family in the 1970s. Her own marriage was being torn apart by the disruptive traveling, and she feared her father might try to abuse his grandchildren just as he sexually abused his own children. Berg's inner sanctum was experiencing major turbulence overseas. As Deborah emerged from the fog of her father's abuse and manipulation, she learned from extended family members a shocking truth. David Berg's mother, Virginia, had never in fact experienced a miraculous healing from a back injury. While she had been injured, she wasn't paralyzed for five years. It was a myth. A myth that informed the rest of David Berg's life, and a myth that the devout children of God still believed. Deborah analyzed this in her own words in her book, The Children of God, The Inside Story. Quote, if using the gospel for the promotion of self was part of my father's heredity, then his response to it was to adopt this principle as part of his mental and moral fabric. If he responded to Christianity as a vehicle for self-promotion, then it would follow that he never learned the teachings of Jesus Christ. Instead, he reflects the image of a man bent upon promoting his own goals, fulfilling his own desires." End quote. In 1974, the desires of David Berg came to occupy center stage, and he passed on sexual abuse as scripture, forever changing the future of his cult. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by The Weather Channel. The key to solving any mystery? Smart decisions based on the facts. 
In the case of the weather's effect on your well-being, turn to the Weather Channel app. It clues you in on how weather shapes your mood, health, and productivity with insights built on reliable forecast data to help you thrive. Because mystery belongs in true crime, not weather. Be a force of nature with the Weather Channel app. Now, the story continues. After two years of management hidden away in England, David Berg and Maria moved in secret to Tenerife in the Canary Islands. Tenerife was to become a staging ground for a strategy they had been developing for the children of God in England. This strategy first started circling in 1974, contained within the Mo letter, The Law of Love. This letter, unlike many of the others, was not put into mass publication at first. It was spread slowly and carefully down the chain of leadership. Sensitive handling was required because of the contents. Inside, the cult's beloved leader was rewriting biblical history yet again. And he was making it a psychological match for his own state of mind. From here on out, the law of love declared that all members of the children of God should pursue sexual liberation. God was love, after all, and he wanted his children to love one another. In the context of the cult, it meant that nudity, masturbation, and sexual sharing were not only encouraged, but labeled as the natural state for members. Over time, this changed the daily rituals of the cult members entirely. While study of the Bible and Mo's words remained paramount, so did sexual exploration. They were encouraged to develop the new way of life that would redeem the earth after the Great Tribulation and end times. They were developing the post-nuclear family standard together. And in many minds obsessed with the idea of free love, it was unquestionably the way of the future. The most divisive and impactful of these new dictums was what became known as flirty fishing. Together in England, Maria and David had begun visiting dance halls and nightclubs. David would send Maria out onto the floor where she would attract men to her side. David allowed her to take these men home and sleep with them. During and after sex, Maria witnessed to these men, telling them that this sex was a sign from God of his love. In David's words, sex was a gift they were meant to give out to win the hearts of the non-believers. The women of the cult were to be the lure, and the hooked men were the fish. And because Maria, the prophet's own companion, was the first to practice, followers shouldn't worry about purity or consequences. This was as God willed it. To cement the new rules, Maria went fishing in Tenerife. She found a handsome hotel manager, and nine months later gave birth to a baby boy. The child's name was Ricky Rodriguez. David Berg immediately but unofficially adopted him. Called Davidito, the cult leaders declared him the chosen son of the children of God, who would one day lead the faithful to Christ during the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation that kept getting further and further away. Berg knew that some people were already getting suspicious that the end times hadn't yet arrived, especially as sex came to occupy more time in the cult. Davidito represented the first of the emerging second generation. It was both a symbol of the cult's longevity and a promise that, even if it took a few more decades, the prophecy was going to come to pass. As the news of Davidito and the law of love spread throughout the now international cult, flirty fishing began to become normalized. It's important to note that this was a radical departure in terms of ideology. While the evangelicalism that formed the basis of the children of God wasn't as puritanical about sex as the dominant sects of Christianity in America, it was still considered an act that was to be preserved for marriage. This new strategy would have come as a major shock. But again, malleability was built into the belief system of the cult. It could change at will. And if the followers were to truly believe themselves saved, they had to change themselves along with it. Many years later, Miriam Williams, one of the women who engaged in flirty fishing, wrote a memoir about her time in the cult called Heaven's Harlots. In her own words, she describes the early years of the flirty fishing era. Quote, I was inexplicably intrigued by the metaphor of catching fish, with the bait on a hook being the love of God. Why did this prick my interest? Why was I fascinated by a woman being used as a lure to other men? 
The image was a classic pimp prostitute model, but I didn't recognize it. Even if I had, we had already learned that God can use anything the devil uses and redeem it for his own glory. Mo taught us that the devil had a monopoly on sex, and we were going to bring it back into God's realm. End quote. When the women began receiving money or other supplemental resources from these fishing sessions, Berg and the leadership allowed it. In fact, he encouraged longer-term relationships, as it would keep his people afloat without having to resort to working within the capitalist system. It gave them more time to witness and recruit. And Davidito was far from the only child born into the children of God through flirty fishing. Deemed Jesus babies by the group, pregnancy itself was turned into a recruiting tactic and trap. Even in a hideously drunken and isolated state, David Berg knew exactly what words to use to control his followers. If they thought their children were born with the holy mission, they would be more easily convinced to raise them within the cult. Well, not everyone was convinced. By 1978, it was becoming clear that older members of the group and those who disliked the new emphasis on spiritual prostitution were not going along with the plan. This rebellion reignited the fire in David Berg. He had become too complacent as the cult expanded without much opposition. This challenge gave the prophet an outlet to exercise power over his own insecurity. It gave him a second wind. Berg put on a show of power at the end of 1978. The Children of God's charters were rewritten. Over 300 members of the leadership chain quit. This period, known as the Reorganization Nationalization Revolution, was the official endpoint of the moniker Children of God. In its wake arose the Family of Love. This name better suited Berg's lecherous ideas and manipulations, but still gave off the image of pure-hearted Jesus people. Only the most devout, loyal followers remained, but they still numbered in the thousands. What the reorganization really did was clear the way for David Berg to transform the way the cult operated entirely. Sex and free love became a central focus. Remember that birth control was not allowed in the family during this time. And as more children were born into the following, the Mo letters shifted into a grandfatherly tone. David Berg began opening up about his own sexual experiences and thoughts from his childhood. He didn't want the next generation stifled the same way he was. There was a Mo letter entitled, My Childhood Sex where he actually described in detail the abuse inflicted upon him by a babysitter at three years of age. But shockingly, Berg looked at the experience in a positive light. He believed it opened his mind up to the limits of society earlier than everyone around it. He viewed it as a strength. His youngest daughter, Faith, wrote similarly about her experiences with her father molesting her. She saw it as something wholesome and loving. Berg didn't see anything wrong here either. David had no problem with raping his daughters. This reads like disassociation. According to the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, also known as RAIN, this type of enforced break from reality can be found in many victims of abuse. By distancing themselves from the abuse or crime, respectively, the mind can compartmentalize. It might even be a natural self-defense mechanism. Unfortunately for the victims, this can lead to a lifetime of denial, a result we can clearly see in the lives of both David and Faith Berg. David Berg's sex-themed Mo letter and the many similar messages that would follow it never addressed negative consequences. It never spoke of a line between good sex and bad. In fact, in one letter, the prophet even commented that in the era of Jesus Christ, it wasn't uncommon for girls as young as 12 to be married and bearing children. Again, through either keen manipulation or sheer megalomania, David Berg validates his own pedophilic desires through scriptural metaphor. By repeatedly beating such messages into the minds of his followers, he played on their sense of trust in him. He was always challenging them to think on such taboo topics. Many just accepted the sexual ideas as an extension of that boundary pushing. Moses Berg was a visionary after all, wasn't he? And so this pedophile and abuser began his campaign to normalize his desires within his cult. He thought he finally had a moral universe to control. Instead, he was just creating a cult-wide atmosphere of familial abuse. While sex with underage children was never explicitly commanded, 
the behavior was undoubtedly encouraged by messages like these from the royal family. Housing was rearranged into group living situations, upward of 10 people, all from different families and all of different ages lived together. Many children from the second generation of the cult look back in horror at these days. They were forced to see their parents and random adults walking around naked. They heard and witnessed them engaging in sexual acts. Many of these homes kept a sharing schedule hung on the wall that organized and kept track of all the partner swapping. While there exists nothing but unverifiable witness testimony, there were reports that young children from the age of 12 on could be placed on the sharing schedules in the most sexually abusive homes. The years from 1978 to 1982 represent the peak levels of sexual abuse within the cult, and it came at the most dangerous time possible, just as more and more young children were born into the cult by inoculated parents. Berg couldn't help himself. His sexual dysfunction only got worse as he aged. While the details get murky after reliable witnesses like Deborah left his life, there are few reasons to believe Berg ever stopped using his position of power to personally hurt young children. It is known that during the late 70s and early 80s, the Prophet put out a proclamation for members across the world to film love videos. He said that the videos he received of female members dancing in a seductive manner were beautiful evidence of God's love. This led to videos being made that featured underage girls dancing alongside the older women. This was child pornography, through and through. But in the minds of Berg, and therefore in the minds of many of his followers, it wasn't really a crime in God's eyes. Many thought the children liked this treatment. It was a tragic continuation of the abuse that affected Berg's life and his own daughter's lives. Ricky Rodriguez, otherwise known as Davidito, received some of the worst treatment. David Berg and Maria chronicled Ricky's life in photos and writings from birth onwards. They were building a fresh New Testament in their minds. They called it the story of Davidito. And throughout Ricky's early years, from 1975 to 1981, various iterations of the book were circulated throughout the cult worldwide. The story of Davidito was like a normal baby book in some ways. He was raised like many hippie children were, but there were many disturbing elements in this true life narrative. As if trying to replicate his own life, David Berg encouraged Ricky's babysitters to molest him. By the age of three, Ricky was acclimated to such behavior from the adults around him and naturally came to seek it out. The adults took it as encouragement. David Berg was right all along. This couldn't have been further from the truth. They were stunting the boy's development by sexually abusing him, and they never stopped. To make matters worse, the Family of Love published photos and stories of this abuse in the story of Davidito. Needless to say, as the 80s wore on, more anti-cult pressure built up against the Family of Love. The love videos leaked out, and in order to avoid prosecution, the cult's leadership ordered all copies destroyed. Similarly, the story of Davidito was purged from the records. Yet proof of Ricky's abuse in particular still exists to this day. So many copies were distributed over such a long time period that it was impossible to assure destruction of everything. Today, censored pages are used by anti-cult groups as evidence of the family's abuse. And yet, these actions remain unpunished. And sadly, at this point, impossible to prosecute. But that doesn't mean there weren't consequences. As the second generation aged up into the family of love, the cult of David Berg met its biggest problem yet. How to hold on to these free love children as the world around them grew up and moved on from the failed countercultural revolution of the 60s and 70s. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now let's continue the story. From the outside, everything looked peachy. In 1980, the Family of Love numbered over 8,000 members. While flirty fishing did provide some income, the more reliable tactic that emerged in this time was called provisioning. Since all the members were living in large communal groups scattered across a city, state, or country, a specific group in each home were given the task of provisioning. This system developed out of a traditional missionary group activity, Missionaries travel around to different businesses and homes asking for donations. 
Family members would take on the guise of Christian missionaries, often never mentioning what faction they truly belonged to, and would receive gifts of food, used furniture, and clothing from any restaurant, home, market, or store willing to give. And not all of this was selfish. The family technically was a religious group, and the surplus was given out to homeless shelters. This also fit the word of Berg perfectly. It justified material gain. All things in the end belong to God. Satan has just taken them away. By reclaiming these materials for the saved, the members justified their own actions. Their musical practice continued to grow into a network of hundreds of recording and broadcast stations. Faith Berg led this network called Music with Meaning. And while that organized entity lasted only a few years, many recording studios and the equipment inside of them remained with the family. Media as a tool and tactic was there to stay. Their traveling singing troupe, known in the 80s as the Family Singers, even performed for the Bush White House one Christmas. Today, the family still has a chartered media wing. Even though much has changed since their old incarnation, they remain masters of media. Their most successful output is on YouTube, where they make cartoons that have found large audiences for kids online in Muslim and Buddhist-majority countries. Another lasting legacy of the family during the 80s was the construction of combos. These were huge facilities that served as a nexus point for the scattered group homes in Latin America, Asia, Europe, and when the wall fell, the post-Soviet bloc countries. What these combos really did was depersonalized communal living further for the second generation. Oftentimes, children lived without any of their parents in these communes. The only people they knew were adults in positions of power who could tell them to do whatever they desired. Many in this second generation questioned the daily structures and ritual that their parents had accepted at face value. On top of this, kids naturally did not want to be split apart from their families or raised by irresponsible and sometimes abusive strangers. But the psychological effect on these kids was real. A crisis of faith occurred within this age group. Dubbed junior end-time teens, or JETs, by family leadership, rampant drug use and misbehavior were unacceptable issues in the eyes of Moses Berg and Mother Maria. The result was the creation of teen centers, structured like sleepaway camps. The leadership put strict and devout teachers in charge of large groups of teenagers. The goal was to wrangle the misbehavior and show them the light. Instead, these were just venues for more abuse. Even the very first teen center, run by Faith Berg in Mexico, was corrupt from the start. Former attendees claimed that Faith and other teachers were commonly sleeping with their underage charges. And if teens continued their rebellion in these centers? Enter the Victor programs. These were even more isolated and intense. The goal was to create Victors, reformed and saved young men and women who achieved spiritual victory and were ready to rededicate to the family. What really happened in these places is hard labor. The teenagers were routinely pushed into vigorous over-exercise for hours at a time. After monotonous and pointless drills, they would be ordered to break up old concrete, pour new cement, clear fields, and plant crops, essentially creating these new victor centers from the ground up. These centers were mostly in tropical climates, like the Philippines, which made the work even more backbreaking. The Filipino victor center, named the Jumbo for its massive scale, held over 350 teenagers at a time. They were all confined within 10 to 15 foot walls, and the perimeter was constantly patrolled by armed guards. Some former attendees claimed that during the year they spent in the jumbo, they were only ever allowed outside its walls once or twice, and always accompanied by a family security guard. Others who asked to leave early were sequestered in rooms and physically beaten. Faith Berg held a leadership role at the Japanese Victor program, making the youth engage in extreme actions like exhausting and demented exorcisms and severely punishing anyone who disobeyed the orders of the day. Teens who spoke up were made to wear signs around their necks, stating no one could speak with them. They were on silence restriction. The pieces of the day not spent working were spent in study. The Mo letters, of course, were the main education literature. The kids were to memorize them, dedicating whole passages to heart. 
The leaders, known as shepherds, would collect daily confessions. If a particularly sinful failing was confessed, the shepherds would sometimes publicly shame the individual to teach them a lesson. And what was victory in the eyes of the shepherds? It was never well-defined. According to an investigation into the programs by cult researcher Stephen Kent, the goal, quote, involved one's self-acceptance as a sinner who needed the direction of family leadership for salvation. In the words of one former Victor program student, known only by the name of Cheryl, the true psychological effect was more drastic. In her words, It's hard to put it in words. I just couldn't stop crying and I thought, the family is right. I'm so, so wrong. When examining the tactics of the family's Victor program, Stephen Kent also determines that the form of mental conditioning on display can be accurately categorized as brainwashing. Many researchers still shy away from the term, but Kent outlines six primary elements that make up brainwashing by his own definition. First is forcible confinement, not enforced, but the threat of containment instead hangs over the heads of those who are otherwise considered free. Judging by the security measures around the Victor program centers, this tactic was well understood by the shepherds. Then comes physical maltreatment and social degradations. Both of these clearly occurred. The social degradation in particular stands out as a tactic the family used since the beginning. The teens had to renounce major aspects of their former lives. This shame was used to trap them into allegiance to the family, the only ones who could save their souls. Next comes the intense study of ideology and forced confessions of wrongdoing. Finally, and most disturbingly, is the creation of personal success stories. And this too happened in the Victor program. After bending to the will of the shepherds, followers wrote down their stories of ideological redemption. This psychologically cemented the brainwashing in their own minds, while also passing on the virus to the next host. While it may not have always been extreme, the Victor programs of the family employed brainwashing, without a doubt. Not everyone who went through these programs came out severely damaged, but enough did that word began to spread. By 1988, anti-cult groups such as FreeCog had come together into one organization known as the Cult Awareness Network, and that year also brought them a large victory against the family. Ex-followers smuggled them a surviving copy of one of the love videos. This was shared with major news networks and publications. For the first time in the history of the cult, the spotlight focused in on potential sexual abuse amongst the membership. As the 1980s came to a close, David Berg's health also went into steep decline. While he didn't drink as much as he did in the previous decade, the prophet never stopped living an unhealthy lifestyle, and it took its toll. The family's opponents saw this as vital progress toward dismantling the family once and for all. David Moses Berg had always been such a central component that almost all doubted the cult could operate without him. But Berg planned for this too. For years, he had kept Maria at his side for this purpose. As the 80s wore on, Maria began writing more and more of her own letters to the followers. David Berg ceded more and more control to her as the end of the 80s came into sight. And he even selected her next mate, a longtime member called Peter Amsterdam. As Maria and Peter Amsterdam took greater control of the family, they faced the largest mountain yet in the cult's journey. First of all, sexual sharing within the family homes had increased to such a point that STDs and AIDS were becoming a major threat. Maria influenced Berg to write a letter regarding this, and then followed up with her own that restricted sexual sharing to people with less than six months of membership. Sex was no longer to be used as a recruiting tool, and overall, promiscuity became discouraged. Maria might have been just as culpable in the abuse of Ricky as David, but she wasn't as stubborn as the prophet. She could see the damage being caused by the world's perception of the family as a sexualized cult. By 1985, she made public statements regarding the family's zero tolerance for child abuse. Maria and Peter carefully selected passages from Moe's previous letters, piecing together a scriptural rebuttal. Finally, the biggest cut arrived in 1987, as Maria began to systematically end the flirty fishing system. 
In truth, the tactic had never been very successful in recruiting long-term members. Between 1974 and 1987, it's estimated that the family members used flirty fishing on over 200,000 partners, and yet membership never surpassed 10,000. As the AIDS era dawned, this flagrant disregard for safety and propriety in sex was nothing but bad press. Yet the leakage of the love video in 1988 cut open a vein of paranoia that was unstoppable. In 1993, 300 children were taken from their communal homes in Argentinian family settlements. 30 parents were arrested. In an Australian commune, 120 children were taken into custody. And in Spain, 10 more adult members were arrested on child abuse charges. It was during the height of these raids and controversy in 1994 that David Brantberg died, still hiding out from his own demons and paranoia, this time in Portugal. Cause of death was unknown, but it was most likely due to his years of drinking. Now the future of the family depended fully upon Maria and Peter Amsterdam. Amsterdam, in one case, decided to write a letter to a judge stating that the new leadership admitted some passages of Berg's old writings could be taken to encourage child abuse, even if the intention was never there, in their opinion. This was a major move for the family to make. Maria and Peter had also instituted a policy of developing media homes in every family-occupied country. These were places allegedly free of the family's criminal sexual activities. They were, in reality, promises. Promises that although bad things might have happened long ago in the family, those times were over. After the swath of legal cases in the early 90s, no follower of the family was convicted. Maria and Peter accurately saw this as an inflection point. It was time to remake the family once and for all. They had been granted a small mercy. They needed to play it for all it was worth. The family became more open welcoming scholars and journalists into their media homes, ending aggressive witnessing tactics out on the streets, and beginning what Peter Amsterdam dubbed a ministry of reconciliation. The family allegedly wanted to reconnect with ex-members and heal the wounds, whether this was an earnest attempt at recovery or a savvy grab for redemption points, the family made their new direction loud and proud. Maria and Peter Amsterdam solidified this in what would become known as the Second Reorganization Nationalization Revolution. The cult would now be known as the Family International. Distancing themselves from the sexual sins of David Berg, by 2004, they had drawn up a new mission statement known as the Love Charter. Supervision was drastically reduced. Individuals were encouraged to practice their own beliefs and even attend other churches if they found fellowship there. The communal home size was shrunk down to a more manageable and safe level. While Peter and Maria were still divine in the eyes of the followers, and Mo Berg still passed down his own edicts from the side of Christ in heaven, the Family International was much quieter than its predecessors. They did this to survive. The world changed. The revolution ended. So Maria and Peter Amsterdam followed in the path of other charismatic evangelical groups, making themselves more like a corporation than a religious movement. And while this was unequivocally good news for any new generation born into the family, it did nothing to negate the consequences that fell on the second generation. Between 1995 and 2007, 25 children raised in the family during its heyday took their own lives. Many ex-members remain in contact with each other online, trying to help each other deal with their specific and forgotten traumas. In 2001, Ricky Rodriguez joined these exiles when he left his mother and his little sister. It was the only way he could get out clean, or so he hoped, after years of abuse. Along with his fiance, Ricky wrote a departing note to his mother to express his grievances. In his own words, Quote, We cannot continue to condone or be party to what we feel is an abusive, manipulative organization that teaches false doctrine. You have deceived people and led them away from the truth in almost every way imaginable. And worst of all, when they are no longer useful to you, they are discarded. You have devoured God's sheep, ruining people's lives by propagating false doctrines and advocating harmful practices in the name of God. And as far as I can see, show no regret or remorse. I could talk for hours about it all, 
but what's the use? You'll never change, end quote. Ricky left the family with no real-world skills and a lifetime of abuse at his back. The only work he could get was manual labor. He told Maria he just wanted to live a normal life, worshiping Jesus Christ in a purer way, alongside the woman he loved. But after 2001, Ricky never saw Maria again. Even worse, Maria did not allow Ricky's little sister, Techie, to see her brother either. This destroyed Ricky. He tried to find solace with other survivors online, but his rage only grew. When Ricky heard that Maria and Techie stopped by their grandparents in Tucson around 2003, he moved to the city himself, hoping to catch them again on a later trip. All he wanted was to take Techie away from Maria and give her the freedom he had chosen for himself. But they never came back. Ricky's mental state deteriorated further. All he could think about were the others like him, the abused, the neglected, the exploited, all of the ones who didn't get away like he did, all of the ones who would be dealing with these emotions for the rest of their lives. In 2004, Ricky made a call. Someone from his former life had come to Arizona. Her name was Angela Smith. She was one of Ricky's childhood babysitters. She was one of the women that David Berg had instructed to love Ricky. She was one of his many abusers and rapists. The call seemed normal enough. He invited Angela to dinner. He wanted to catch up. Perhaps Angela didn't think anything of it. She never acknowledged that what she did to Ricky was rape. But when Ricky took her back to his apartment after dinner, he stabbed her to death. The next day, Ricky drove across the border and called his fiance in an attempt to explain himself. Once he hung up that call, Ricky shot himself. Ricky Rodriguez wrote his own cruesome end to the story of Davidito. Unable to cope with the years of sexual abuse perpetrated by David Berg, his mother Maria, and their devoted followers like Angela Smith. Like many victims of the family, Ricky's life had been taken away from him. It had been given over to visions of a disturbed and selfish man. The family was supposed to have been a group of rebels, those who saw the status quo as a clever deception, as a misdirection from God's true will. These rebels were mostly young, impressionable, and tragically hopeful. But the children of God were chosen because of their vulnerability, not because of their hearts. They had left one system for another, mistaking it for freedom. All because one man needed a bigger family, not to love, but to control. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T.com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Join us next Tuesday for our next episode. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, production assistance by Joel Stein and Carrie Murphy, Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire, Carly Madden, and Jeanette Manning. Cults is written by Jack Bentel and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.